Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for today. Uh, we thank You for bringing us all together to worship You. Um, we thank You for this beautiful weather outside that reminds us of the beauty in Your creation as we talked about in Sunday school this morning. Um, we just thank You for who You are and for um, the work You've done in creation, creating us and, and sending Your Son to save us of our sins. Um, we just pray that uh, as we look at Your Word this morning, You'd help us to uh, really reflect on um, ourselves and, and our own hearts and what we desire most. Um, we pray that as we look at First John that you'd help us to see our need to uh, keep you first in our life and to love you more than anything else. Um, we just uh, thank you again for who you are and pray that you bless our time here together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. How often do you feel the tug of the world on your life? Or do we even see it that way? Are we callous to those feelings, those temptations? Do you know what a pet sin is? It's a sin that we treat like we would a pet. We keep it close to us because it gives us comfort or makes us happy. We really don't want to admit how much it really costs, but it's more destructive than we want to admit. Maybe it feels good, or you don't think it's that big of a deal, this pet sin of yours. Maybe you feel like if it doesn't hurt anybody else, then what's the big deal? If I'm the only one that knows about it, then maybe it's not that big of a deal. These pet sins can be the tug of the world on our hearts. Our hearts pursuing things that God would not want in our life. And as some of you know, Chelsea and I began a new ministry this year. Um, where We are uh, the dorm parents of one of the dorms on campus. And this means we function, function similar to parents for 41 college guys that live in our dorm. And this means we have... Uh, a number of great ministry opportunities, and this can range from Chelsea baking uh, goodies for the guys and inviting them into our apartment for some good conversations. It can be Bible study opportunities, one-on-one discipleship, or just sharing wisdom with uh, these guys that that uh, are looking for wisdom to, to be shared with them. Well, this ministry opportunity, uh, thankfully, is going to serve as... Uh, my uh, internship and as I get my seminary degree. So that's really been a blessing. But um, a couple weeks ago, as we were serving in this ministry, a couple weeks ago, I was sitting in one of my guys' room, and we were just chatting about life and chatting about his faith and how it should impact his life. And we talked for a couple of hours, really, and the conversation ranged over a whole... Uh, variety of topics. And as we talked, we came to the topic of an issue that he was having in his life. And as one thing led to another, we got to the root of the problem, which was a pet sin that he had in his life. And he thought it was no big deal. I, I, as we talked about it, I warned him about the dangers of this sin, but he insisted that he didn't see this danger, and for him it wasn't a big deal. I shared some different passages of Scripture with him. 
but he was still insistent that this issue for him was not as big a deal as I was telling him. It really wasn't until I came to this passage that we're going to cover this morning that he began to see, and it really began to click for him. He really began to see that you cannot combine love for this world and its desires with love for God. Now, this guy really does care about his faith and his love for God. He really genuinely does. And he finally began to see the damage that his affinity for this particular sin was having in his relationship. And that's really kind of what we're going to be talking about this morning as we come back to the book of John. As we've been in, back to the book of 1 John, as we've been in and pastor's been in for the last few weeks. And I know sometimes we like to think of, and I know I like to think of John as the uh, loving apostle or the uh, kind of emotional writer. And we like to see him that way because he writes about love so much and, and a lot of his writing is very, uh, stirs a lot of emotion in us. And this, while this is true, we shouldn't see John as soft or weak in his theology. Really, John can be kind of harsh in what he says. And I personally like John a lot because he is so black and white. For example, we've seen already in the book of 1 John that you are either in the dark or you're in the light. Either you admit you're a sinner or you're lying. You're either loving your brother or you're hating him. You're either obedient to God or you're not in Christ at all. There's no gray area with John. And today's passage is no different. John presents another contrast that defines who has the love of the Father and who doesn't. And our our big idea this morning is going to be the love of the world is contrary to loving God. You can't have both. You have one or the other. You cannot allow love of the world into your life if you truly love God the way we should. So let's turn to 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And let's read it together. It says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know Him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the Father. I write to you fathers, because you know, who, you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And as you'll see this morning in this passage, there's really two sections that we're going to cover. The first section is verses 12 through 14, and then the second is 15 through 17. So we'll start here in this first section. And in many of your Bibles, it will look differently. It'll be spaced out differently in the paragraph. And this, this really serves as a sort of a bridge between 
the beginning of the letter, and then what we're going to be getting into is the, bo- the body of the letter that John continues on, as Pastor will get into after this week. And John is really summarizing his teaching in the first part of the letter. And he's affirming his confidence in his readers, and he re- reassures them that they do indeed have eternal life. And really, if you look at it, it's almost as though John thinks he's been a little tough or a little harsh on his, as he calls them, his little children. And now he's taking some time to reassure them. John explains his motivation for writing to his little children by describing them in three different categories. And they correspond to different stages in life. Children, fathers, and young men. Really what we can see here is that through every stage of the Christian's, Christian's life, confession and forgiveness of sins, knowledge of the Father and the Son, the indwelling of God's Word, and victory over evil are necessary aspects of walking in the light. As we saw last week, of the importance of walking in the light and not in darkness. Let's read these few verses again. He says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children, because you know the Father. I write to you fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. There is a little confusion in this passage, uh, if you read different commentators, because many of them take the different terms different ways. Some would say that he's speaking to different groups of people, specifically. And he's giving them specific instruction or encouragement. Well, we see here the term little children. We've seen this before. John uses this term six other times, and he's clearly referring to all of his readers all of his original audience. And it really kind of echoes Jesus' use of the same term, little children, when he addresses his disciples in the upper room discourse in in John chapter 13. So the confusing part is, why does he use the term young men and fathers? Is he only writing to men here? And some would say that, yes, he's writing to the men of the church, or he's writing to the leadership of the church. But I don't really think that he's being this specific. I think he is writing in an artistic way and simply addressing all believers in this church. All different age groups. John's using these words with more of a rhetorical force. And he's describing all of his readers in their different stages of life. And as one commentator uh, rightly points out, he says, "...the characteristics ascribed to each group are elsewhere applied to the whole community." And the author would probably not have been too anxious with which any of his readers identified themselves. So what this guy's saying is, that's not the point of this passage, is to identify these different groups. It's more what he's saying is true about them. What he's reassuring them. And the four truths that he's reassuring his readers are, number one, that your sins are forgiven. And number two, that you know God. You've overcome the evil one, and God's word remains in you. These four things are true of every believer. 
If you're a believer, never forget these things are true. They're essential for your life with God. Your sins are forgiven. Christ died and paid the penalty for your sin. Your sins are already forgiven. You know God. You didn't used to know God. When you were dead in your sins, you had no way of knowing God. Now you know God. You have overcome the evil one. Sometimes we forget this when we battle with our sin. But the battle's been won. We've already overcome the evil one. Christ won that battle for us. And the fourth thing is that God's Word remains in you. That because of the Holy Spirit, we always have God's Word with us. And we need to commit His Word to memory so that we can recall it when we need it. As uh, one commenter uh, says, he is not writing because their sins aren't forgiven as if to evangelize them. And he isn't writing because they don't know the Father and as if to tell them about God. Nor is he writing because they haven't overcome the evil one. That's not the purpose of John's writing. He's writing to reassure them of these things, that they are true. And like we said before, John lays down some pretty hard teaching in the first two chapters. And he will again after this. For example, in chapter 1, we saw John say, If we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we are lying. We also saw in chapter 1, it says, If we say we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves. In chapter 2, we saw the one who says, I know him and does not keep his command is a liar. And then, the one who hates his brother or sister is in darkness. These are some pretty harsh things that John's been saying. Basically saying, either you are or are not saved depending on your answer to these truths or these questions. So you can almost see the original readers thinking, is this what John thinks we are? Is he, who is he talking to? Does John not think that I'm saved? You can almost feel that when you read through this. And John might say, well, if the, if the shoe fits, then yeah. If you are living like this, you may not be saved. However, he comes to this section, and now he's addressing those he knows are saved. Because John knows there are many in this church that are believers. And he's reassuring them of things they need to hear. He wants to reassure them that he does know that their sins have been forgiven, that they do know the Father, and that they have overcome the evil one. So just as John encourages them with these truths, these are things we need to remember. We need to remember that our sins are forgiven, that we do know God, that we have overcome the evil one, and that God's Word remains in us. So that's our kind of a bridge section from the first part of the letter into the body. And here, we see, starting right off in verse 15, the first command that John gives. Let's read these verses again. It says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride in possessions, is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away with all its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. 
So after affirming his confidence in his original readers, who were living rightly and in the light, John now begins to give commands to his readers. And here he uses his authority to assert God's will to his people in that they must not love the world or the things of the world. Again, this passage starts to lay the foundation of what is to come in this letter. And you'll see the theme of overcoming the world. And that will be developed in the coming weeks as we go through 1 John. And that we are to overcome the world. And again, this is the first command that, that the Apostle John gives in this letter. So far, he's just been explaining truth to them. And now he comes with a command. And in light of eternity and all the world has to offer is temporary at best and rebellion against God at worst. Only a life motivated by obedience to God and God's eternal values will survive the passing away of this world and all of its desires. And John had previously said that the one who loves his brother or sister abides in the light. We saw that in the passage Pastor covered last week in chapter 2. So this command is a sharp contrast to that. It creates a new category in, in John's contrast that he gives. We have the light and the darkness, and now we have love for the world and love for God. Living in the light means a life of love for God and for fellow believers. We saw that whoever hates his brother is not in the light. But in order to live in the light, you must love your brother. Well, here we see you cannot love the world. Anyone who loves the world is excluded from life in the light. In fact, love for the world, as John defines it here, is a sharp contrast with love for the Father. He states, anyone who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Those who love God must not love the world. By John's definition, the world is all that is in rebellion against God. And clearly we see a different type of love here than was talked about in last week's passage. Last week we talked about love for your brothers, which is more of a care and concern. That type of love. Here love is meaning something different. Love refers to more of an attraction or a lust or an indulgence in things that are not in the light. It is to want to participate in what is set in rebellion against God. This is not the same type of love that we should show for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So, what is the world that John is talking about? He says in verse 16, for all that is in the world. Is he really talking about everything in the world? I think Daniel Aiken has some wide, wise commentary on this verse. He says, it must be emphasized that this condemnation of everything in the world is not a declaration that the world created by God is evil. As we saw this morning in Sunday school, God created the world as good. As, in fact, very good. The world itself was not corrupted by sin. 
when He created it. It is now since sin has come into the world. But we see God's creation is not inherently evil. So it cannot be the, the world in that sense that John's talking about. See, John fully embraced the doctrine of goodness of creation taught in Genesis 1 and 2. We see that in, in, his, in John's Gospel. John chapter 1, he refers to creation being good. Rather, it is a proclamation that humanity in its sinfulness has followed evil rather than good and has worshipped the created things rather than the Creator. And we see here in verse 16, John qualifies what he means by loving the world. What part of the world are we not to love? And John names more specifically the things in the world. He lists them as the desires of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of possessions. Or some of your versions might have the pride of life. Everything in the world does not refer to its physical makeup or its creation, like the oceans or the mountains or the animals. But here, John is talking about the moral and spiritual impulses that determine how people live. So what are these things? The desires of the flesh. It's literally what your flesh desires. In other words, it is the impulse of our human behavior that arises from natural and even God-given physical needs. So God has given us some of these desires. The desires themselves are not necessarily bad. It's what we do with them. How we feel about them. Do we indulge in them? Do we lust after them? Are we envious of them? Now these lists of three things that John gives of the world, they're not a comprehensive list, but it really represents everything that will distract us from our desire for God. Do not love the things that your flesh desires. Again, the desires of the flesh might be natural, but our fallen nature drives people to satisfy them in ways that are not of God. This leads to things like gluttony or alcoholism or drug use, or sexual immorality. The things people chase like comfort, or good feeling, or security. Those are the desires of the flesh. Things God gave us, but that we mistreat. The next thing he lists are the desires of the eyes. And like the desires of the flesh, these are things that we see that cannot satisfy Similarly, these are things that might be inherently good in themselves, but that we see them and we are envious of them or we lust after them. So do not love the things of the world that you can see, but they have no eternal value. Jesus healed our spiritual blindness. We used to be dead in our sins and blind to spiritual things. But now that Christ has risen us to new life in Him, we can see the significance and the scope of salvation that He's brought into the world. The third thing there is the pride of life or the pride of possessions. And this is finding your identity in what you can do or what you have done. Or maybe even what you have. As, as Karen Job comments, 
while pride in one's occupation and material goods, the material goods it provides, or pride about one's social status is common enough in every society, John is more pointing to those whose security is in their worldly things, and wealth makes them so prideful as to overlook their need for and dependence on God. They do not realize that all they have is not of God and will pass away and be of no eternal value. So again, these are things that are not necessarily bad. Whether it's money or power or our position, God might have given us those things with good intentions, but how do we treat them? Do we find our security in them? Do we find our identity in them? The pride that results from and in worldly possessions is offensive to God. It leads to glorification of yourself and a failure to realize the dependency that we have on God, our Creator. In this area of temptation, individuals make idols in their own livelihood, their social standing, or any other status that the world determines is important but matters very little to God, whether it's pride or prestige or power. All these things count for nothing in God's kingdom. The value system of the world is turned on its head when God provides the evaluation. In fact, the things that the world says are important are exactly the opposite. Think of the Beatitudes that Jesus gives in His Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. God's values are completely different than the world's values. And we are different now. We used to be of the world. But Christ's followers have been called out of this world. So although we still live in the world, we still live in the sphere where evil has power, our own impulses and our desires, they need to come from God. God's given us new birth and we are no longer from the world. In verse 17, we see that the world is passing away and so are its desires. The things of the world might seem to be of great value, but in reality, they're quite worthless. Especially when we compare them to the blessings that we will have in eternity. In contrast, the world and all its desires, like food and drinks and sex and money, all these things and the conceited pride that rejects any need for God, all of that is passing away. Even the most permanent things in life have no eternal value. The things that the world seems to value greatly are worthless when compared to our eternal blessings that come from doing the will of God. Jesus Christ's death and resurrection has defeated the world and all that is opposed to God. And He has secured for us eternal life. So what is your perspective? Do you value the things of this world? Do you value the things that will be gone? Or do you value eternity and the, the things that are to come, the blessings that we will receive? Do not love the things that have no eternal value. That's what John is saying here. 
when he says, do not love the world. Do not love the world's values. Do not love what the world loves. You have a different value system now. You are a believer. John is really challenging the value system of believers. The believer does not value things that are passing away. So don't waste your time chasing after things that are going to pass away. And I think we also need to not miss the last phrase in verse 17. Because it's very important. It says, whoever does the will of the Father abides forever. And the will of the Father he's talking about here is not loving the world. You notice it doesn't say, whoever claims Christ will abide forever. Or, whoever says that they believe will abide forever. No, it says, whoever does the will of God. You can't claim to be a Christian and not do the will of God. You can't say you believe and live totally differently. Doing, doing the will of God does not save you but it shows that you are truly saved. A true believer will do the will of God. So, if the desires of this world are more valuable to you than God is, maybe you need to reevaluate. What are your values? Do you value what God does? Or are your hopes and desires set on things of this world like power and possessions and money. So, what can we do with this passage? Well, we saw in the first section there, John's encouragement to all believers. So this is also an encouragement to us. If you are a believer, these things are true of you all the time. Your sins are forgiven. That's always true. Ever since you placed your faith in Christ, your sins are forgiven. They have no power over you. The second thing is that you know God. Never forget that you didn't used to have this ability. That you used to be dead in your sins. You had no spiritual concept of who God is. But now you do. Third thing is that you've overcome the evil one. Christ won that battle for us. The, over, the evil one has been overcome. That's past tense. That happened. And the last thing is that God's Word remains in you as long as you put it in you. Meaning, read God's Word. Memorize God's Word. And God's Word will stay with you. The Holy Spirit is with you to bring these things to your mind. These are the things that John encouraged his readers. That because you're a Christian, these things are true. And don't forget that. In the second section, we saw John's first command in the letter. And it says, do not love the world. And do not adopt the world's attitudes and ways of life with respect to God. Don't live like the world. You're not of the world anymore. The early church leader named Cyprian, speaking on this, or writing on this passage, he wrote this. He says, Since the world hates Christians, hates the Christian, 
Why do you love that which hates you? And why do you not rather follow Christ, who both redeemed you and loves you? Why do we do this to ourselves? That's not who we are. The world hates Christians. Why do we love the world? Why do we love the things of the world, the values of the world? The power, the pride, the possessions, the money. Those things won't make us happy. Why do we love those things? That's not who we are. There is no love for God in the one who loves the unbridled desires of the flesh, whether it's for food or drink or sex or money or power. Remember what John says, if, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. There is no love for God in the one who places highest value on the material things of life. Things that can be bought and sold, but at the same time they undervalue invisible things like love and faithfulness and goodness and the things that are true of Christians, the fruits of the Spirit. There's no love for God in the one who feels so self-satisfied and secure in the life they've built on their own accomplishments and wealth that they have no need for God. It's the pride of life or the pride of our possessions. This is what began to sink in as I talked to this guy in my dorm. He began to realize that clinging to this sin was a contrast to loving God. And that you can't have sin like this in your life when you truly love God. The two don't go together. That when you love the world and the things of the world, the love of the Father cannot be in you. That's the realization that we all need to come to. That loving God needs to be more important than loving the things of this world. You can't have both. So allow God to have His rightful place in your life. And that's first. Don't allow other desires or pet sins take God's place or come between you and God. Don't envy or covet the things of this world. They're not worth it. Don't value things that are passing away more than eternal things like obeying God. So really, John's challenge to us is what is your values? What's your value system? Do you value things of the world? Do you value it more than you value God? Is the real question. How important is God to you? I want to end with this uh, poem that by Charles Studd that really kind of explains what we're talking about here this morning. It says, Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for, God, for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord, to meet and stand before His judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave 
and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in His will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep, in joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. O let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn. Living for thee and thee alone, bringing me pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for today. I thank you for your word. I pray that we would evaluate what we value in life. And do we chase after the things of this world? And do we value them more than we value you and living for you? I pray that we would really think hard on that and you would really convict us of the areas where we need to grow in. Um, Thank you for this time that we've spent together. And I pray that you would bless the rest of our days. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.